Psalm 119, verses 153 to 160. Persecuted, yet revived. Look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. I behold the treacherous and loathe them, because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Heavenly Father, we know that your word is what we need. We know that we are revived by your word. It is there that we learn of your loving kindness, your mercies and compassion. And it is there that we hear of the gospel and we're saved of our sins. Thank you for your word. We ask you to show us from this passage how it is your word that we need to be thoroughly knowledgeable of and convinced of and believe it wholeheartedly and also obey it faithfully. We must do this no matter what our afflictions are. And even when the many people of the world attack us, when they speak against us and slander us, help us to be faithful to you by means of your word and by means of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, in this passage, the emphasis of David, he turns to his persecutors. He knows and prays about his many persecutors. David was, though he was the king, before he was king and even while he was king, he had his persecutors. He easily could have been the person that everyone respected. He could have been easily the person everyone respected as he was an excellent musician. He was an excellent warrior. He was an excellent poet. He was a handsome man. He was a handsome young man. It describes him in these ways before he even became king. He should have had the popularity of all the people for those reasons. Isn't that why people are popular today? Either they are handsome or, and beautiful, they know how to speak well, they're good poets, they're good musicians, so on. This is the way people get attention and they have popularity. And then in David's case, he even became the supreme politician of the land. He became the king. By the ordination of God, he became king of the land. Doesn't everybody want the, the favor of the most powerful person in the country? The king? Certainly they would. Generally they would. So what was it about David, though he had every earthly reason to be popular, to be loved, and even for people to pretend and feign their allegiance to him, he had all of that. What was it that caused people not to be that way toward him? What was it that caused people to actually reject him and to seek his death, to malign him, to backstab him, to practice treachery against him? What was it? David explains, and the rest of the scriptures explain, that not only for David, but for all of us, it will be because we adhere to the true gospel of Christ. It will be because we believe that the Bible is the true word of God. 
It will be because we are, have our allegiance to the King of Kings, that is, Jesus Christ Himself. It will be because we believe we are sinners, and the only way to be reconciled to God is by believing in the death and resurrection of Christ. That will be the only way of salvation. Not in any other person, not in any other religion. There is no other means. But by believing that Jesus' righteousness, His perfect death on our behalf, saves us from our sins. To believe in that. And then to live our life accordingly. After all, Jesus was holy. He was blameless. He was undefiled. He was separated from sinners. He never sinned. So if He was that way, and if we follow Him, we must be that way. We must begin to reject the sin that's in our life. Whatever small sins or major sins, however often we sin, we sin a little bit or a lot, whatever it is, we start to begin from the time of our conversion, to the, from the time we confess faith in Christ until the time we see Christ face to face, we give up sin day by day. This is the battle we face. But when we do so, what happened to David? What was David's problem? Why was David persecuted? Why was Jesus persecuted? Why were the apostles persecuted? Why will you and I be persecuted? It will be because people will either deny and reject what we believe or how we behave. It will either be because of what we think about God, what we believe about the true gospel of Christ, or how we live in accordance with that true gospel of Christ. When we live for righteousness sake and not for wickedness anymore, our enemies will start to mount and they will mount against us and overwhelm us at times, but not completely because we have God on our side. This is what David faced and this is what he explains in this passage. Let's look at it in greater detail. Verse 153, he prays to, to the Lord. Look upon my affliction and rescue me for I do not forget your law. Lord, we know that your eyes move to and fro throughout the earth, that you may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Second Chronicles 16.9 We know, O Lord, that your eyes are in every place watching the evil and the good. Proverbs 15.3 We know that you know all things. So look upon my own situation. Do not forget me. When you are scanning the earth, to help and support those who belong to you, look upon me. Consider me. After all, I belong to you. After all, I've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. So look upon my affliction and rescue me. He goes to the only one who can help him. He goes to the only source of his deliverance. The God who knows all things knows what David is experiencing. And he knows what we are experiencing. So he goes and runs to him in prayer. He asked for God to deliver him and to rescue him from all of his troubles. And then he says, for I do not forget your law. Why is it that God should look upon David and not anyone else? Why is it that God should look upon us and not just the average person on the street? Because David says, I do not forget your law. I want to obey you. I want to know you. I want to love you according to your law. I don't forget about it. I don't hear something when I come to a religious service. I don't hear it once and then let it escape my mind and go away from my mind because other things preoccupy me in life. I don't forget. I adhere to your law and I remember your law. 
I desire to know you and to grow in the things of God. I don't forget your law. This forgetfulness of the law of God was, uh, was in David's mind in that he never wanted to forget God's law because he knew the consequences. If he forgot God's law, then God would forget him. If he forgot God's law, then God would not be pleased with him. If he forgot God's law, then God has no basis on which to answer David's prayers. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Psalm 66, 18. If I harbor wickedness, God will not answer prayer. So we must confess our sins. We must not forget the law of God. The Lord says in Hosea, in a, in a very bleak time, which is actually characteristic of all time periods, in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, he says of his people, Israel, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priests. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. My people, the people who are called by the name of the Lord, these people don't actually belong to the Lord. They have the name associated with the Lord, as today, people, many people say they are Christians, but they're not really Christians, because they are not pursuing knowledge, true knowledge, knowledge of God, through the Word of God, and then God will reject them, since they reject the true knowledge of God. God rejects them from being a priest or a spokesman for Him. And then because they forget the laws of God, the Word of God, God says, I will also forget your children. You abandon me, my laws, claiming to be my child. Well, I'm going to abandon your own children. I won't have anything to do with them. Those who hate me, as we read from the second commandment in Exodus chapter 20, those who hate me and do not keep my commandments, God will hate them to the third and fourth generations of children. This is the way it is. This, this is why David says, I do not forget your law. I don't want any of those things to be true in my case. I want you to grant me your favor. He continues in his prayer, verse 154. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Plead my cause and redeem me. You see, David looks to the judge of heaven, the judge of all the earth, who will do justly. He pleads with the judge of heaven for his own cause, for his own case, for his own lawsuit. He has a complaint against his neighbor because his neighbor is causing trouble for him. So he doesn't retaliate against the neighbor. He turns the other cheek and then he prays to God for help. He doesn't return evil for, for evil. Instead, he prays to, to the Lord so that the Lord can plead his cause and redeem him. This is what we ought to do as well. Remember, there was a widow in Luke chapter 18. In Luke 18, 1 to 8, a widow who was seeking justice from a judge. He was a wicked judge, but because of her persistence with the wicked judge, he granted her request. And Jesus said, will not God, will not God do justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? No. So the widow did not practice evil against her own opponent in law. What did she do? She pled with the judge, and in due time, this wicked judge helped her out. And God says, or Jesus said that God will, being our loving father and our loving judge, a righteous judge, he will give us justice 
in due course if we do not give up praying and pleading to him for justice. So don't do evil when people do evil against us. Instead, practice righteousness and pray to God. And then he trusts that the word of God will revive him. He repeats this three times in our passage. 154 says, revive me according to your word. In 156, revive me according to your ordinances. And in 159, revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. How do we overcome discouragement? How do we overcome the moroseness, a feeling of depression, a feeling of anxiety? How do we overcome those things when the world is against us, when our persecutors are all around us? What should we do? Should we take drugs? Should, should we get drunk? Should we go gamble? Should we go and do things with our friends, all kinds of wicked things with our friends, in order to escape the troubles of the world? No. Here, to be revived, when he is discouraged, what does David say? To be revived, it is according to your word. To be revived, it's according to his ordinances. To be revived, it's according to God's loving kindness. He goes to the Bible. He reads the Bible. He meditates on the Bible in order to overcome whatever his anxieties are, whatever the depressions are. Whatever is happening in his life, he goes to the Word of God. Because he knows in the Word of God, he's going to learn about who he is, who God Almighty is, about his power, about his promises, about his faithfulness, how he will see him through the rough waters, how he will see him through the fire. God will do so. And that's what revives him. He's reminded, God is on my side. I am with you always, even until the end of the age, Jesus said. When Jesus is on our side, when he is with us, then everything else doesn't matter. Whatever people say, whatever people do, it doesn't matter. Whatever our bleak circumstances, whatever we see, we see a dead end in sight. And that's what we see in our life. It doesn't matter. We know God's on our side. And he will help us along the path. We see the dead end, but he's going to make a way for us to get to the other side. That's the kind of faith that David has. He's revived in that when he goes to the Bible. Not to the world, not to the sages and, and, and so-called wise men and professors and ac uh, academics of the world. Not to the newspapers, not to the counselors, not to the movies, not to the musicians. He doesn't go to any other source. He goes to the Word of God. That's where revival is found. The Word of God. It is the Word of God, the Word of truth, as James says in James 1.18. It is the Word of truth that made us to be born again as first fruits to God. It's the word of truth that revives us. It brings us out of darkness into light, from death to life, and even throughout our Christian life. It is this word of God that we need. 155. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Salvation is far from the wicked. Notice here that David says that there are wicked people. He doesn't consider himself a part of the wicked, not because of his own goodness, not because of his own good works, not because of his own righteousness, not because he has brilliance and wisdom that is natural to himself, but because the righteousness of Christ has been reckoned to his account. 
He was indebted to God, but Christ's righteousness by faith in Christ is given to him. So he is different from the rest of the world. There are two categories the Bible teaches. Only two categories of people. There are righteous and wicked people. There are sons of light and sons of darkness. There are the wise and there are the foolish. There are the sons of God and the sons of the devil. There is a kingdom of heaven and there is a kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the devil. There's only these two choices to make. And David is squarely and fixed in the right category. He's on the side of the righteous. Well then, what happened? What about the wicked? How can we know that the wicked are really doomed? How can we know that the wicked are really going to experience the eternal punishment of God? Well, he says right here, salvation is far from the wicked. <coughs> Once we know we are on, in the right group, on the side of the righteous, among the righteous, because of our faith in Christ. Once we know that, we must also understand that the wicked are not called wicked because they're just a little bit different from us. They're not called wicked because we happen to have a better way, an easier way, or a more ingenious way than the wicked to get to heaven. No, the wicked will not get to heaven. The Bible actually teaches that if anybody is in the category of the wicked, salvation is far from them. There's no hope for them. The only hope for them, for them to be saved from their sins, is faith in Christ. To be in the group of the righteous. But otherwise, the wicked in their condition, they are lost. They are condemned. They are on the road to hell. Salvation is far from them. There is no getting to heaven apart from faith in Christ. This is important for us to grasp and to understand with conviction because it's easy for us in our postmodern era, in an era of pluralism and an era of syncretism, an era of relativism, that is, all roads lead to Rome. Let's all coexist. Give peace a chance. With all of these slogans that are bandied about in our society, people think well, that you can be different a little religiously here or there. It doesn't matter who you follow. You can follow Christ or somebody else just as long as you are doing the best you can, that just as long as you are sincere, we'll all get to heaven. No. This text says salvation is far from the wicked. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. No one comes to the Father but through me. And he meant not only Jews, but he also meant Gentiles. Jews or Gentiles. That's why it says in 1 Timothy 2, Verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the only mediator between God and men. Not just Jewish people, but all peoples throughout the world. Then we might ask, how can we know if somebody is wicked or somebody is righteous? How can we know that the favor of God is upon us or not? How can we know that we are forgiven of our sins or not? He answers that in verse 155. He says, For they do not seek your statutes. They do not seek your statutes. They don't seek after the Word of God. 
They don't seek after the will of God and the wisdom of God found in the Word of God. They don't seek after it. They don't want anything to do with the Bible. They reject the Bible. They ignore it. They don't read it. They stay away from it. And then whenever it's brought up, they always reject it. They'll rail against it. They'll criticize it. They'll look for contradictions. They'll say, the Bible is a man-made book. They don't seek the statutes of God. That is a basic and fundamental characteristic of somebody who is born again and someone who is not born again. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the, the Apostle Peter exhorts us to desire the Word of God. And notice how he describes it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. He, he calls on us as newborn babes or newborn infants to long for the pure milk of the Word. A newborn infant naturally wants his mother's milk. Naturally wants that and longs for it. So, a newborn infant in Christ, after he tasted the Word of God to know about the Gospel of Christ, he will want to know more of it. He will want to and long for more of the Word of the Gospel. And he says, If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. If we first tasted this good and sweet gospel of God that was for our nourishment, we will know it's good for us and we will want more of it and more of it and more of it. We'll continue to want the Word of God. These are the people who seek the statutes of God. And this is one of the prime indications of someone who is truly born again. Someone who truly knows Christ as Lord and Savior. If he does not long for the Word, if he, he does not care for the Word of God, he doesn't want to read it, doesn't want to know it, doesn't want to study it, doesn't consult, doesn't seek after it, doesn't examine, then he's not a born-again person. He's not a believer in Jesus Christ. He does not know God. God is far from him. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your precepts. This is a very easy and clear indication, among the many indications of Scripture, of who is on God's side and who is on the devil's side. We must seek for the statutes of God. Verse 156. Great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. He remembers the great mercies of God. The great mercies of God that delivered him from his sins. He knows that salvation was dependent upon the mercy of God. He knows that there is no other way except that God intervenes in his life and displays his mercy toward him. Because he knows of this great mercy of God, he wants more of it. He has had some experience of it, but he wants more and more and more of it. How great was this mercy of God? In Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 5, the Apostle Paul explains. Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, 
in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What was in us? What was in us before we were made alive? We were dead. And by deadness, dead means that there is no impulse, no life, no ability to hear, to speak, and to see. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We trespassed against the laws of God. We sinned against God. We were a blight. We were, we were uh, a stain. Th this is the kind of sin that we committed against God. We walked in this according to the course of the world. The world, the flesh, and the devil are mentioned right here in verses 2 and 3. The world, the prince of the power of the air is the devil. And then our flesh, the lusts of our flesh... We used to indulge. We used to walk. We used to do just like everybody else does. We used to do just as the devil taught us. We used to do just as it desired within ourselves. This was the way we were. So it would take, if that was our condition, if that was our plight, it would take a miracle to change us. And it did. The great mercies of God. Verse 4 says, But God being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God, in his great mercies, he intervened. He broke the stony heart. He made it tender. God intervened. Our heart was closed. Our eyes were closed. Our ears were closed. God intervened, and he opened our eyes. We had deadness, spiritually speaking. And he made us alive. Just as Jesus raised people from the dead. When those people were raised from the dead, they had no impulse. They had no pulse. They had no ability, no awareness to see, to hear, to do anything. So it took the command of God to awaken those dead people. And that's what is happening here. It takes the command of God to awaken and to give life to anyone who is dead. Because of God's mercy and His grace. David's reminded of that. And from that great storehouse, from that immense storehouse of God's mercy, he's wanting more of it. He's reminded of it, and he's wanting more and more of it day by day, according to the Word of God. That's why he says, revive me according to your ordinances. If we are seeking God according to the Word of God, and we're reminded of the mercies of God, Will it not well up within us? Will it not cause us to say, Lord, I want more of it. Lord, help me with this other sin. Lord, help me with this decision I need to make. Give me wisdom. Give me your mercy. That which I do not know, reveal it to me. And God will. When we reflect upon his great mercies. Now verse 157. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. He says that his persecutors 
and adversaries, his enemies are many. There are many, many all around him. Yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. David, as we said before, he should have been very popular. From every human judgment, every human standard, he should have been very popular. And his only enemies should have been those on the outside of his country, not on the inside of his country. On the outside of his family, not on the inside of his family. But we know in David's case, both within the country and within the family, he had his enemies. His enemies within the family were Absalom and Adonijah. They wanted to usurp the throne. Absalom even wanted to do it before David's death, and he wanted to do it by killing David and killing all the people around David. He had to flee for his life. Absalom was his own son who wanted to kill him. So many are the persecutors and adversaries of David, but they are ours too. Ours too. It says in 2 Timothy 3.12, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If we are living godly lives in Christ Jesus, we will be persecuted. He didn't say we might be, we could be, it might happen once every hundred days. He didn't say that. He said we will be persecuted. It will be regular fare. It will be a regular happening that everywhere we turn, there will be people who are suspicious of us, people who malign us, who slander us, who do all kinds of evils against us. They'll say things and they'll do things to make us their enemies and the target of their spite and hatred. Really, they hate God, but they can't do anything with God. He's invisible. He's in heaven. Really, they hate God, but they expose their hatred. They vent their hatred against us when we are faithful to God. To the extent that we are faithful to God, in word and deed, our persecutors will be many because they despise the veracity of the Bible. They despise the truthfulness of the things that we say and do. They despise it. They want nothing to do with it because it exposes their own sins and they don't want us by our life and by our lips to remind them of their sins. They are guilty. They know that they have a burden of guilt. They know they transgress. They have a conscience, God-given conscience. They know they sin. But when we are around them and we don't talk as they talk, and when we're around them and we don't behave as they behave, they feel guilty, so they'll take it out on us because they can't do it with God. And they can't control themselves. Their guilt weighs them down so much, they have to blurt it. They have to say it. They have to throw a punch our way, uh, sometimes a literal punch. They will have to do that because they absolutely despise us. But it we're reminded in this verse that it will be many people. Now, this calls our attention to a big dilemma we have going on in Christian, Christianity worldwide, not just in the United States, but worldwide. There are many people who claim the name Christian. And yet, those many people who claim the name Christian are not persecuted for the sake of righteousness. They're not persecuted 
for believers in Christ, for being believers in Christ. They're not persecuted for those reasons. They might be persecuted because somebody else wants their position in the company. They might be persecuted because somebody else wants their position in the church. They might be persecuted because somebody else wants their position in the government. With whatever uh, enticements and whatever pleasures and authority that those positions give to the people. For those reasons they'll be persecuted. But they won't be persecuted for righteousness sake. They won't be persecuted for faith in Christ. But for the wrong reasons. So the question naturally arises. Why is it then that the many, many people who attend churches, why is it that the many people who attend churches are never persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for believers, for being believers in Christ? Why is it that that doesn't happen? Are they true Christians? Are they living the Christian life? Are they speaking up when they need to speak up? Are they being bold and courageous? Or are they not? Or, or are they pretenders? Putting on a show. There's a show that goes on in front of them by the so-called pastors who are not pastoring but entertaining them and, and making it easy for them to come to church. Or the, and then the people, when they see that, then the people who attend, they want it easy and breezy too. So what do they want? They want to go to a place where it's easy. And this is what happens. And so the gospel is diluted. The people are diluted. The people are never persecuted for the sake of righteousness. They're never persecuted as believers in Christ. Nothing like that happens. And that shows they don't belong to Christ. David says, many are my persecutors. How could it be that the one who is faithful, that there's a few who are faithful, and he's persecuted by the many... That is the way it's supposed to be in the Bible. But how is it that there are many, many people who are never persecuted, and then when somebody does speak up, those people, even in the church, rail against the one who speaks up? This happens all the time. It happens all the time that those in the church who claim to be Christians, who are never persecuted for speaking the truth, there might be one or two or a few individuals in the church who do speak up, they are, end up being the worst people you've ever met. They end up being just the uh, sons of the devil because they said the truth, the truth of the Bible. They took a stand for Christ. They said, no, we will not support homosexuality here in our church. No, we will not support evolution here in our church. No, we will not support this or that sin, whatever the sin in our church. And they stand on the Bible. And then what happens? The many persecutors they have are the people within the church. Not on, in the world. That happens too. But the amazing thing is that it happens within the church. It should not be that way. The many persecutors should be in the world, not in the church. And then in David's case, even though there are few who are faithful, David says... I do not turn aside from your testimonies. David, he doesn't become overwhelmed. David does not say, well, everybody's doing it, so I'm going to do it. Why, why is it that everybody else doesn't think this way? He doesn't ask those questions. It doesn't matter to him what people say. He only wants to know what the Bible says. I do not turn aside from your testimonies. 
I want to be faithful to what the Bible says, no matter what the numerous people all around me say, whether they claim to be Christians or not. I will do what the Bible says. I will stand on the Word of God. I do not turn aside. I'm fully committed to the Word. This is especially difficult when so many people are describing the situation in the way that the reality contradicts. When we see a reality, we see, we see that there is a, an, an anthill. The people of the world will say, that's not an anthill. No, 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 that, that's an elephant. It's not an anthill, it's an elephant. And if a thousand or, or ten thousand people tell us that that's an elephant, not an anthill, then we begin to wonder, are we crazy? We begin to wonder, what, where have I gone wrong? We begin to wonder that. We know it's an anthill. We, were no, we knew it was an anthill, and even other people had said this for a long time. And yet now, everybody's calling that anthill an elephant. So who's crazy? Who's doing wrong? Who has turned aside from the way of truth, the way of righteousness, the way of reality, the way of the facts? Who has turned aside? Well, in David's case, he goes to the Bible to see whether he is thinking straight or not, whether he understands reality or not, whether he is sane or not. And he confirms that he is sane and the other people who call the anthill an elephant, they are the insane people. They are the fools. They are the ridiculous people, not me. And how does he get this confidence? How does he get it? By the word of God. I do not turn aside from your testimonies. And then, verse 158. How does he perceive and look at the other people? He says, I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep your word. He looks at, he beholds the treacherous, and he loathes them. The treacherous are those people who defect. The treacherous are the people who say, I believe. And then the next day, you don't see them around. The treacherous are the people who say, I believe, for a week or a month, for a short period. And then you don't see them around. The treacherous are also the people who say that they believe, and yet their life is a complete contradiction to that. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Titus 1.16 They claim to know God. They say, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. But they have no desire to live in conformity to the Scriptures. They have no desire. That's the treacherous. Some explicit and blatant examples in the Bible. We might say, in the, in the time of, of, of Jesus... Judas Iscariot is the best and prime example of that. He walked with Christ for three and a half years. He preached the gospel of Christ for three and a half years. He cast out demons. From Matthew 10, verses 1 to 4, we know that Jesus commissioned the twelve, including Judas Iscariot, to go out and about to cast out demons, to heal people of diseases, and to preach the kingdom of heaven. He commissioned even Judas Iscariot. And Judas did that for a while. But Jesus calls him a, a betrayer. The scriptures call him a betrayer. The scriptures say he was never a believer. And Jesus on that day of judgment will say, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. 
I never knew you, Matthew 7, 23. I never knew you. I didn't once know you and then stop knowing you. I never knew you as my own child. That's the treacherous person. The treacherous person is one who claims the faith for a time, but then he goes away. He claims it for a time, but then he exposes himself as not really believing it, either by word or deed or both. He rejects something of, of theology or morality or both. This is what happens. They are treacherous people. They are untrustworthy. And actually, Proverbs 20 verse 6 says, Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? Who can find a trustworthy man? There are very, very few trustworthy men who, who truly love God and love the faith. And many are treacherous. So, if that is the case, what should our view be towards treacherous people? Should we go overboard with them? Should we give them boxes of candy all the time? Should we tell them how swell they are? Should we give them uh, the, 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 uh, the title friend or brother or Christian? What should we do with them? That's what the world would suggest that we do. We have to love them to death or love them to life. If we can change the, uh, the turn of, uh, of that phrase. Love them to life. Love them as much as possible with boxes of candy, even a big steak or whatever it takes to convert him to be a believer in Christ. No. It says here, I loathe them. He loathes them. He despises them. He hates them. Treacherous people, they should know better. They should know better because they already said that they knew. They already claimed the faith. And now they are walking against the faith. They're talking against the faith. So we should loathe those people. Those people are worthy of that. Psalm 119.113 says, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. I hate those who are double-minded. None of these prayers here in Psalm 119 are sins. None of these are sinful prayers. And none of these are merely factual or merely prescriptive. They're not just describing what, J, uh, what David is thinking. They're actually prescriptive. They're not just uh, descriptive. They are prescriptive. They are prescribing as a righteous man prays and thinks. So we as righteous people should pray and think. He hates those who are double-minded, but he loves the law of God. That's how we ought to be. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, <coughs> verse 19. Psalm 139, 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. That's an amazing prayer. He's praying for God to slay the wicked. He doesn't want to be around them. And then he says, the, the wicked people speak against God. They take God's name in vain. Well, who takes God's name in vain but somebody who says, I know the Lord. I believe in the Lord. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I'm a member of that this or that church. 
I've done this or that. I've been baptized. I've, I've gone to the front. I've prayed a prayer. I've done those kinds of things. And yet, they transgress with their lips in life from that point forward. They are taking God's name in vain. They are God's enemies and they are speaking against God wickedly. So David's response to all that, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do, not, do I not loathe those who rise up against you? He hates and loathes them. And he, then he says, I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. They became my enemies, not because I was looking to make enemies. We're not looking to make enemies. We're not looking to be rude and crude with people. We're, we're supposed to be kind and loving and patient and, and gentle with people. But when they start to transgress against God, when they take God's name in vain, when they do things and say things against God and the people of God, including us, then our response should be to hate them. This is a tough teaching, but this is a biblical teaching. Notice also Jesus teaches us to hate. In Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 14 and verse 25, 14:25. Now great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. He tells the multitudes because he's always, Jesus is always stiff-arming the multitudes. It's easy to draw a crowd for earthly and fleshly reasons. And he did draw a crowd because he performed miracles. He helped them. He fed them. So he drew a crowd. But whenever a crowd did gather about him, he would push against it. He would stiff-arm them with a statement like we have in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We cannot be disciples of Christ unless we practice hatred. Now, what did Jesus mean by this? As I said before, he didn't mean that we need to walk around with the club and start beating up people. He didn't mean that we have to come up with a big list of words to use against them. Uh, dirty words, four-letter words, whatever. He's not saying that. He's not saying we ought to be rude and, and be a jerk towards people. He's not saying that. He doesn't mean we should be unkind. He doesn't mean anything like that. What he means is, including ourselves, if we want to be a disciple of Christ, we must absolutely hate the things that they stand for the things that they stand for, and to the extent that we need to separate from them, we need to separate from them. And the same with us. We're even supposed to hate our own selves, otherwise we can't be Jesus' disciple. That is, what would we hate about ourselves? Not, not that we're too tall or too short or anything like that, but what should we hate about ourselves? Our sin. Hate our sin, loathe our sin, and give it over to Christ. Hate our sin, loathe our sin, so that we do not love it and follow it to be a disciple of Christ. If we want to be a disciple of Christ, we must absolutely despise sin in us and sin in other people. And to the extent that we need to separate from them 
and even confront them and tell them, you are saying wrong. You are speaking against God. You're, you're blaspheming Christ. To the extent that we inform them of that, that is the way in which we are informing them and showing our hatred of what they believe and what they do. That's what Jesus meant here, and that's even what David meant. David didn't mean, because I have enemies and I hate them, now I'm going to rally the troops, his, literally his own army, and then go wipe out and annihilate all the people who hate him. David never did that. He never believed that. Now, we're not talking about warfare. Of course, David conducted warfare. But he didn't just pick up a sword and rally his own soldiers against his enemies within the country or within his family. He didn't do that. And we're not supposed to do that. But we should hate what they do, what they stand for, their sin, and to the extent that we have to separate from them, have nothing to do with them, we must behave that way. That's the sense in which David meant, I behold the treacherous and loathe them, for they do not keep your precepts. Now, verse 159. 159. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. Lord, when I pray, Lord, when I ask you, understand that I do love your precepts. I love your precepts, so give me more of your love. The Bible teaches us in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. We love God because God first loved us. Then when we love God, we love him by loving his word. And by loving his word, it calls on us or it it produces in us a desire to ask God for more of His love. And then we get more. So He initiates love towards us. We love Him in return. And when we love Him in return, we ask Him for more of His love. And that continues and continues and continues. This is the, the prayer that David has here. Consider how I love your precepts. Because I love your precepts, I love your word. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. I know you have more love to give me. I know you have more wealth of heaven, unseen heavenly wealth to give me, so give me more. We'll note that in Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians 3, the Apostle Paul, he writes this letter to believers, or those who profess the faith of Christ. He's writing to them, and at the same time, his prayer in Ephesians 3 is interesting. Because he's asking for them to have more love. And notice the immensity of the love that they can tap. Ephesians 3.14 For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That he would grant you, that God would grant you, the believers, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. That, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that... You, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. They are already believers, but he's praying that they have more of the power of the Spirit, and they have more of Christ in them. They have more of the love of God in them. They have some... But he's praying for more. And that's the way David prays. 
He says, consider how I love your precepts. So therefore, Lord, revive me according to your loving kindness. I belong to you, so please give me more. Then finally in verse 160, why is it that he's so ardent and fervent with this kind of prayer and attitude? Because he's convinced of something. 160, the sum of your word is true, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. David is thoroughly convinced that everything in the Bible is true and righteous and eternal. True, righteous, and eternal. What happens to us, and even what happens to people who hear the gospel, when, when we encounter something in the Bible, we encounter something in life, immediately the devil, as he did in the Garden of Eden, he will throw in doubt. He'll throw in a question. He'll throw in skepticism. He'll throw in confusion. He'll throw confusion into the Bible so that we don't believe it's true. We don't believe it's righteous, and we don't believe it's everlasting. He does this all the time. He does it to believers, and he does it to unbelievers. We read something, we hear something in the Bible, and we ask a question. Not a sincere question, but a fault-finding question. Why, is it, why did God say it that way? Why did he have to say it that way? I don't like the way God said it. I don't like what God is, is expecting of me. I don't want anything to do with that. I'll, I'll read this part of the Bible, but not the other part of the Bible. I'll follow one part of the Bible, but not the other part of the Bible. I like this attribute of God, but I don't like the other attribute of God. I want God to be only loving. I don't want Him to be holy. I want Him to be only merciful, and, and I don't want Him to be righteous. Because if He's righteous and holy, then I might not be on the good end of that righteousness and holiness. And I want more of His love and mercy, and I want Him to be all loving and merciful so that I can do whatever I want to do. I can live the way I want to live. Well, we can't do that. That's what happens. We, within us, the world and the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil are always seeking to undermine the Word of God. They're always seeking to raise a question, to raise a doubt, to be skeptical, to undermine the Bible. To say, no, don't believe that part. No, that part's unclear. And they make everything in the Bible unclear. They'll even make salvation unclear. They'll even make the claims of Christ unclear. They are so bent on cl clouding the Bible, making it foggy and smoggy. That's what they're trying to do in the Bible with everything. That they say, well, that, that's not so clear, so you shouldn't be so dogmatic about it, they say. That's so unclear and... And because it's unclear, we don't need to follow that or believe that. No, our duty is to seek, to study, seek His statutes, examine the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And to do so on the basis, with full conviction, the Bible is true, the Bible is righteous, the Bible is everlasting. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Matthew 24, 35. Jesus said that. So if we're followers of Jesus, we must believe what Jesus believed. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Let's have this kind of conviction. If we have this conviction, then we will love the Bible. If we have this conviction, then we'll want more of God's love. If we have this conviction, it doesn't matter what God commands us to do, we will do it. 
even if it is leaving our familiar settings, like Abraham had to do in Ur of the Chaldeans. He had to leave his familiarity with that region and his people and, and the language and the culture and the religions to forsake false religion, to forsake people who did not want to follow God and to go to a land that he did not know, to go into the land of Canaan and to be a wanderer and an alien in the land of Canaan and not to see every promise of God fully fulfilled. He had glimpses of it fulfilled in miraculous ways, no doubt, but he had glimpses of it fulfilled, but he never saw it fully fulfilled. That is yet to come. In the same way, let's have confidence that the Bible is true, and let's stand on the Bible no matter what anybody says around us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says.